checking your body and your nuts every night to make sure that uh, there weren't too many leeches attached and burning them off with the lighted end of cigarettes. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there to lose it. That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Tony Dell is a veteran of the Vietnam War. The National Serviceman is also the only test cricketer to fight in Vietnam. He was a fast medium seam bowler who made his test debut against England for the vital seventh test in the 1970-71 Ashes series, taking five wickets in that match. After war, sport gave Tony an outlet and place of mateship and camaraderie, but he could not escape that the war had scarred him. This trauma ultimately gave him a life-changing mission. Stand tall for PTS. Tony spoke to Thomas Kay about his military career and life after service, including the book recently written about him by Greg Malam, and Bring the Darkness Home, the Tony Dell story. I'm Thomas Kay, and today I'm speaking with Tony Dell over Zoom. Tony, welcome to Life on the Line. Thank you very much. So, Tony, let's start at the very beginning. Tell us about your upbringing. I always delight in saying I was born a POM, born in uh, the south of England on the day that uh, the Americans dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, um, August 6, 1945. My dad was in the Royal Navy. He was um, much enrolled in World War II, so, and um, it was a while before he came uh, out of the Navy, and he then worked for Hoover as a travelling salesperson and uh, um, and I guess I didn't see a lot of him. My mum had, I was the first of four, so she did a lot of um, work in, uh, in bringing us up, mostly by herself. And we lived in, um, in a military uh, pre, prefab um, in a little place called Highcliffe, um, just near Bournemouth, Southampton Way. And I, I guess I don't remember a lot about that. I mean, it was um, a fairly um, stressful time, I guess, in the very early years. But, you know, as time progressed, being a, a young kid in, um, in the idyllic um, um, English countryside was great. Dad moved up the chain in, in Hoover, um, and um, by 1957, I think, um, he was the manager of um, Hoover in, in South Wales, and we lived in Cardiff, and we were there for the, uh, for the um, they were called the Empire Games back then in 1958. It was my first real close encounter, you know, with Australians because I was a Boy Scout and I was tied up um, in delivering messages here, there and everywhere. But my first memories of, uh, of Australians um, and cricket was actually the 1956 um, Ashes in England. You know, and uh, I mean, uh, it was, um, I guess that sort of started me off on, um, on, on being some sort of a cricketer. I mean, I was always considered myself um, in my early days as a uh, wicketkeeper batsman. 
one day in um, 1959, my dad got the family together and said, um, how would you like to um, move to Australia? It sounded very exciting. I was put into Church of England Grammar School in Brisbane in late 59. I left school. I wanted to be uh, an architect, uh, but I couldn't get into uh, an architect's office. Two or three months later, I then got into advertising. And um, by then it was, what, 1965. The war in um, Vietnam was escalating. Australia didn't have enough um, regular troops to satisfy the demands. So they brought on um, national service. For everyone uh, that turned 20 in 1965 was eligible, but your um, birthday had to be pulled out of the hat. So the 6th of August, 1945, um, was, uh, was bad luck for the Japanese, and it was very bad luck for Tony Dell. So in 1966, 67, I learned to be a soldier uh, at, um, down at Singleton and then got transferred to, um, to RAR in Brisbane. My main reason for coming back to Brisbane was that um, I wanted to um, resume my cricket on weekends. But um, then two RAR were next in line to go to Vietnam. So um, I spent most of my time um, you know, on exercises and um, didn't play all that much cricket. 1967, 68, um, I became a real soldier. So with your number coming up in the National Service Lottery, had you ever previously thought of joining the military? None whatsoever. My dad was aghast and he said, oh, no, we've got to try and get you out of this. Um, Let's go in there for a medical and tell them you've got flat feet. That didn't work. I then um, was uh, was accepted and um, went off to, um, to Singleton um, for six six months. Uh, three months was recruit training, and three months was core training. How did you find all the training? I loved it. I look back now and think about my time and Vietnam and uh, the mates regime of um, of military. And, um, you know, I often think that, hey, if, I, if it wasn't for cricket, after my two years, I could quite possibly have signed up. Do you think that your sporting past in that point uh, with all the cricket had helped prepare you for the military? Yes. I mean, I played, you know, I mean, in those days, I mean, you played cricket in the summer and, um, and rugby in the winter. Sport was, um, was a 52-week um, sort of situation for me. I was a team man. I mean, I never, ever excelled at any individual sport. So jumping back to following your training um, and Vietnam kicking off, did you have any ideas of what you're in for before you had boots on the ground? You were 21, you were bloody physically fit. Um, You're with a whole raft of mates, you know, because, I mean, the camaraderie within the military is um, into none. And um, I was young, I was full of testosterone and boys' own stuff, every boy's dream, but, you know, you're going off to be a soldier and, and fighting a war. I have no qualms, I loved every bit of it. And during the training at the Jungle Training Centre at Penungra, um, I did something silly, bloody fell down a, um, a fairly long cliff edge with all my gear and rifle and et cetera, et cetera. Got a green stick fracture of my leg, or chuffed off to hospital. Um, and um, a few weeks before we were to due to leave, I got called up to the um, um, CO's office, was told that um, because you're a national serviceman, 
and you didn't complete the jungle training, the law says you don't have to go. In a heartbeat, I said, no, I'm right, I'm, I'm going. You know, I mean, you'd done all that training, why would, uh, why would you waste it? Plus, you know, what was I going to do? Sit back in Australia and just do parades and possibly bloody field spuds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, there was no thought about it. Can you tell us about your arrival into Vietnam and what happened just not long after? We caught the uh, HMA of Sydney in Brisbane and spent... So it was about 10 days sleeping in hammocks, which was fairly awkward for a big bugger like me. And um, up on deck, um, you know, every day, PT training, um, live shooting off the uh, the side of the boat into targets in the water. Got to um, Bung Tao, chop it off by um, Chinooks and straight into Nui um, Dat and shown where our, our lines were unpacked. And, uh, and here we were. I think the first week or so you know we just got acclimatized just continued you know just being um, told what was expected of us and what we were doing and uh, you know this was uh, very much part of the exercises we used to have at home except um it's different territory and um and and slightly warmer and and a lot wetter so I think we did, um, you know, sort of a one-day search and destroy, then a two-day one, and then a three-day one, and then um, gradually got into the the groove and um, and became very much part of, um, you know, the whole battalion and, and task force um, strategy. Did you enjoy all of that? Yes, most definitely. I mean, there were times where um, I guess it got arduous. Um, I spent a lot of my time in company headquarters with OC of um, of Charlie Company to RAR, a fellow called um, Major Jim Monteith, who was one of my heroes. I mean, he was just such a, an incredible person. Uh, spending lots of time in the jungle, um, you know, in the paddy fields and water and foliage and uh, checking your body and your nuts every night to make sure that uh, there weren't too many leeches attached and burning them off with the lighted end of cigarettes. It was just surreal, you know, when I think back. Is there any um, stories that you can share? You know, there were situations um, where, you know, I mean, you saw stuff and, um, you know, and I mean, one of the things with ESD is that uh, it's just uh, the brain experiencing something that it wasn't uh, manufactured for. And, uh, I mean, one particular incident sticks out in my mind in that uh, we were out um, during the Tet Offensive. I think it was actually Australia Day 1968. And uh, we, uh, our 9th platoon, had, uh, was out patrolling. They encountered some enemy. They followed them. And all of a sudden, um, they walked into um, a BC camp. They were trapped. The messages came through from the uh, platoon commander to the uh, company commander. And um, he just took the rest of the company into that buddy VC camp and the whole company was trapped. I mean, there were snipers all around. Uh, that was late afternoon um, and we just spent the night um, sort of hunkered down, you know, with the odd buddy bullet whizzing over our heads. The company commander at that stage, buddy went to water, the CSM um, took charge. Um, and just deployed everyone um, as um, as best they could in the dark. I guess we sort of spent the night shitting ourselves and wondering, you know, what was going to happen and how are we going to get out of this? And then come daylight, we called in the uh, the gunships and um, and artillery, you know, and just cleared the whole perimeter, and uh, we were able to um, um, sort of get out. 
And, um, you know, one of the things that I sort of remember quite vividly is, you know, sort of NVC bodies, you know, with uh, heads um, blown out. Not a pretty sight. So, I mean, that was one particular incident which I think uh, possibly resonated with me. But, I mean, the thing with those sorts of things and PTSD is that you've got a job to do. You just compartmentalise, you know, the crap and move on because you you can't shirk or nick off or um, go and have a rest or sit down with a psych, um, which really didn't exist in those days anyway. And I guess there was another incident um, when um, I, uh, before I came home, um, because my time was up, so I had to leave the battalion, uh, the company, and um, and come home a bit earlier. And we were put into a holding company, and that holding company, um, for a week or so, was in charge of um, ambush patrols. We'd go out and get to an ambush spot um, and sit there and wait for um, you know whatever came along. The corporal in charge of the uh, of the ambush patrol got lost. Came dusk. Um, we had to stand to. That came and went. By then it was pitch dark. He was rooted because he had no idea where we were and no idea where we had to be. We just kept going for a while. And then um, the whole idea was we couldn't set up an ambush. We didn't know where we were. So um, he just um, told us to bloody just sit quietly, bloody in the, uh, in the bush, in the long grass and wait till um, morning. Um, and then lo and behold, you know, um, a big contingent of bloody um, um, PC approached and uh, walked right through, you know, the whole ambush group. And, you know, no one knew where anyone was, so we couldn't fire, we couldn't do anything. And if we had, we would have got slaughtered. At that stage, I had the radio um, and I had to turn it off because it would give us away. They moved through. We decided that we need all in artillery to um, blast them. To be quite frank, I mean, I would say she's scared. I couldn't talk on the radio. Um, and someone else, um, you know, sort of took over until I regained my composure. And uh, we called in um, artillery and um, bombarded where we, we thought they'd gone. And again, you know, you compartmentalise in, um, in abject fear of your life and there was nothing that you could have done about it. And a few days later, I was, um, I'd gone to Tonsonut Airport gone to Hong Kong on a uh, military plane and then um, caught a uh, domestic flight, uh, well, international flight from Hong Kong to, uh, to Sydney where my, uh, my family met me. And I stayed there for about a week in Sydney uh, because I had to get back up to Inaugura to be uh, let go. And just as an aside, um, I'd been totally in love before I left. This girl wrote to me continually and I wrote back. I had um, four days R&R in Hong Kong. So I bought her an engagement ring. She was at the airport when I came home. And the next day we met up and I gave her the ring. Um, and then the day after she gave it back and said, um, I've met someone else. <laughs> the ultimate dear John. And I uh, thought, well, stuff this, I'm going to get out of Sydney. So uh, I borrowed um, my mum's car, drove up to Sydney and uh, welcome back to Queensland because as soon as I got over the border, I got a speeding ticket, got uh, discharged and got my final pay, a handshake and fucking see you later. Two and a bit weeks after I came home, a bit over three weeks after that ambush, um, 
I was walking up and down Queen Street, not game to tell anyone where I'd been because we were always warned, don't wear a uniform in public because um, of all the protests and uh, it's just as likely somebody, long-haired, bearded, bloody uni student would spit on you. So, yeah, I mean, probably out of the whole two years, those two or three weeks were possibly the most traumatic. For the next couple of years, and I always say this now, that um, in the absence of any psychological therapy for my PTSD, mental trauma, just the camaraderie of team sport, training, playing cricket, playing rugby, dressing room banter, and the, uh, the workaholic aspect of my job and the fact that I loved it just kept me busy for 365 days of the year. So late 1968, um, I was picked in the Queensland Colts, thinking, you know, oh, shit, I'm a shoo-in here for um, the Queensland team, but not to be. I mean, um, I didn't get picked for Queensland until 1970. Did you ever think that when you came back at first that cricket was going to be what it was? No, not really. I mean, I... There was never any design about anything that's ever happened in my life. I came to Australia because um, of my dad. I played club cricket because I was pretty good at it and I enjoyed it. I never had um, any great designs to play for Queensland. I had no idea that I would ever get selected to uh, play for Australia. So... You know, I mean, just every single thing that's ever happened is um, I just happen to be the right person in the right time at the right place. I just do what I do um, because it seems to be the right thing. We'll move now to um, what's a tough topic for a lot of veterans. It wasn't until 40 years after coming back from Vietnam that you got diagnosed with PTSD. Can you tell us what led to that diagnosis? I played four years of first-class cricket. I played a couple of test matches. And then I was um, 12th man at a, uh, a test match in Sydney in 1973-74 season. I now know in talking to um, um, psychiatrists and psychologists that um, I always had guilt complex. I was nicking off and playing cricket, leaving people to do my job back at work. That was my main income. Cricket was just something that I loved doing. Then in 1980, I got fired. In hindsight, it was um, for PTSD reasons. Um, I'd been giving uh, sort of young workers who weren't measuring up a hard time because of that um, you know, um, syndrome of teamwork, et cetera, et cetera. That sort of thing works in the army, but it doesn't work in business. And, um, and I got fired. And shit, I'd given up my cricket for them. The 80s was an absolute roller coaster. I had three children, uh, one in 81, one in 84, one in 86, two girls and a boy. By the end of 1990, I'd lost my house, I'd lost my business premises, and we were on the bones of our ass. I don't remember much about the 90s. They're more or less a blur. How I got through it, I don't know. I know that one of my saviours was coaching my son's cricket teams, and I'm still incredible mates with... Uh, um, with all of those kids. In 2007, um, I got a call from Defence Cricket, a retired colonels involved in Defence Cricket, saying every two years we have this International Defence Cricket Challenge and because you're the only Vietnam veteran that played Test Cricket, we'd like you to be our guest. 
So that was fine. So that was in Canberra at Monica, and the final was at Monica Oval. Just before I was about to come home, they said, um, oh, have you still got your medals? And I said, oh, no. Being um, sort of regular ex-colonels, they said, oh, you know, you got four, but you know there's a fifth. I said, I've got no idea about that. They said, well, you know, you've got to get replacement. And I said, really? Uh, because I'd never, ever marched. So I went into uh, drop-ins, uh, Vietnam Veterans Drop-In Centre in uh, Cotton Tree, Marichidor, um, because I was living on the Sunshine Coast. At that and there was a number of veterans there and uh, Vietnam veterans. All they wanted to do was talk about cricket. So I spent half an hour talking about you know, the state of Sheffield and Test Match cricket and da di da di da And then after about half an hour, they said, you've got PTSD. I said, oh, boom. And they said, yes, 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 you know, definitely. And they asked me a few more pertinent questions about symptoms. Um, I gave them all the right answers. And uh, eventually I was properly diagnosed, got the gold card and the pension. 2010, you founded Stand Tall for PTS. How does it help veterans? The reason for it, the fact that within the military and the Veteran Association, PTSD was taboo and the effect it had on people was a mystery. And I think within the military at that stage, it was a, a bit of a cop-out. And I knew from my experience and talking to fellow Vietnam um, veterans gone through the same journey as I, and they had no idea what's in the brain will stay in the brain. And if we repair the brain, then we could cure PTSD. But there are all these ways and means of managing it. With all my research, I was not qualified to help people, but I could certainly make the authorities and the rest of Australia aware of what it was to help to reduce the stigma and say that, you know, it's an illness, it is not a weakness. And so many military, coppers, fireys, ambos will not own up because of fear of um, it denting their uh, their aspirations. It's this pride, this reason for being, reason for living. The Zoom connection got a little patchy here, but after describing Stan Tall for PTS as a huge driving force and new purpose in his life, Tony directed listeners to the website to learn more. That website is standtallforpts.org, where four is a numeral. Back to the conversation. Very, very slow start. Had to spend a lot of my money, my own money to keep it going. But Angus Houston by then, you know, was, uh, was retired. You know, him being my patron gave me some credibility. I then met Catherine McGregor. We became the charity attached to the Prime Minister's cricket match at Monica Oval in Canberra in early 2015. And then in 2016, we had to look at creating more awareness. So we came up with a concept of um, um, a lightning bolt convoy because our uh, logo is a lightning bolt. Put together a convoy of military and first responder vehicles and personnel. And we traveled from Brisbane to down the Pacific Highway to Sydney, across to Goulburn and Canberra, and then down to Melbourne, stopping along the way um, over 11 days doing lots of talking to people, being going into RSLs and doing a major press conference with Zangus Campbell in Canberra. We had with us um, a big semi-trailer given to us by Lynn Fox. 
moving billboard and we were due to give a massive conference um, and all the media in Melbourne at the Lindsay Fox Car Museum in Melbourne. All the media were there. We were about half away, half an hour out and Brexit happened. Timing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we then just did something at Federation Square, split up and everyone went their way. So stand yes. tall for PTS isn't only for defence. It's um... Well, it's grown. It's grown, yeah. It started out as Vietnam Vet, and then um, other veteran organisations said, well, what about um, Iraq and Afghanistan and Timor and et cetera? So it grew. We talk about victims of crime accidents and natural disasters. And when we look at the suicides, apps, suicides of uh, rural areas, the double that of the, uh, of the Australian average. It's very, very hard. Have you talked to Heston Russell at all? You know, well, Heston and I are now talking a lot together and he loves my story and he loves the fact that, um, you know, you've got a 76-year-old bloody Vietnam veteran and this 35-year-old Afghanistan veteran and we've all got, we've got the same goals. We want to work together. Out Now is your book, Bring the Darkness Home, the Tony Dell story. I mean, the book is as much about war, PTSD and one and and the ramifications as it is about me. In just a few words, if there was something you could say to anyone that was in your shoes or post-service, what would be your advice to them? Open up and start talking. It's an illness. It's not a weakness. Tony, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for your service, your work in the community, and for sharing your story with us today. Not a problem. Thank you. I'm Thomas Kay, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. That was Thomas Kay's conversation with Tony Dell. We spoke with former commando Heston Russell at the start of this season. Don't miss that video podcast, number 102, Heston Russell. Watching the guys go out there and do that so often without ever fearing for their own lives, not in any form of cowboy heroism, but just for the fact that we had a job to do. We trusted each other so much and we were more fearful of letting each other down and failing the mission than we were of our own lives. You can find a variety of Vietnam War stories on our website by going to the episodes page. And don't forget your copy of And Bring the Darkness Home for yourself or a Christmas present. Follow us at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at L-O-T-L Pod on Twitter and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.